Chapter Four, Part One of Arcadian Adventures with the Idle Rich. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joel Peebles. Arcadian Adventures with the Idle Rich by Stephen Leacock. Chapter Four: The Yahi Bahi Oriental Society of Mrs. Rasselyer Brown. Part One. Mrs. Rasselyer Brown lived on Plutoria Avenue in a vast sandstone palace, in which she held those fashionable entertainments which have made the name of Rasselyer Brown what it is. Mr. Rasselyer Brown lived there also. The exterior of the house was more or less a model of the façade of an Italian palazzo of the sixteenth century. If one questioned Mrs. Rasselyer Brown at dinner in regard to this, which was only a fair return for drinking five-dollar champagne, she answered that the façade was cinquecentisti, but that it reproduced also the Saracenic mullioned window of the Sienese school. But if the guest said later in the evening to Mr. Rasselier Brown that he understood that his house was cinquecentisti, he answered that he guessed it was. After which remark and an interval of silence, Mr. Rasselier Brown would probably ask the guest if he was dry. So from that one can tell exactly the sort of people the Rasselier Browns were. In other words, Mr. Rasselier Brown was a severe handicap to Mrs. Rasselier Brown. He was more than that. The word isn't strong enough. He was, as Mrs. Rasselier Brown herself confessed to her confidential circle of three hundred friends, a drag. He was also a tie and a weight and a burden, and in Mrs. Rasselier Brown's religious moments, a crucifix. Even in the early years of their married life, some twenty or twenty-five years ago, her husband had been a drag on her by being in the coal and wood business. It is hard for a woman to have to realize that her husband is making a fortune out of coal and wood, and that people know it. It ties one down. What a woman wants most of all, this of course is merely a quotation from Mrs. Rasselier Brown's own thoughts as expressed to her three hundred friends, is room to expand, to grow. The hardest thing in the world is to be stifled and there is nothing more stifling than a husband who doesn't know a giotto from a carlo dolci, but who can distinguish nut-coal from egg, and is never asked to dinner without talking about the furnace. These, of course, were early trials. They had passed to some extent, or were, at any rate, garlanded with the roses of time. But the drag remained. Even when the retail coal and wood stage was long since over, it was hard to have to put up with a husband who owned a coal mine and who bought pulp forests instead of illuminated missiles of the twelfth century. A coal mine is a dreadful thing at a dinner table. It humbles one so before one's guests. It wouldn't have been so bad, this Mrs. Rasselier Brown herself admitted, if Mr. Rasselier Brown did anything. This phrase should be clearly understood. It meant if there was any one thing that he did, for instance, if he had only collected anything. Thus, there was Mr. Lucullus Feisch, who made soda water, but at the same time everybody knew that he had the best collection of broken Italian furniture on the continent. There wasn't a sound piece among the lot. And there was the similar example of old Mr. Feathertop. He didn't exactly collect things. He repudiated the name. He was wont to say, Don't call me a collector, I'm not. I simply pick things up just where I happen to be, Rome, Warsaw, Bucharest, anywhere. And it is to be noted what fine places these are to happen to be. 
and to think that Mr. Rasselyer Brown would never put his foot outside of the United States, whereas Mr. Feathertop would come back from what he called a run to Europe, and everybody would learn in a week that he had picked up the back of a violin in Dresden, actually discovered it in a violin shop, and the lid of an Etruscan kettle, he had lighted on it by pure chance in a kettle shop in Etruria, and Mrs. Rasselyer Brown would feel faint with despair at the non-entity of her husband. So one can understand how heavy her burden was. My dear, she often said to her bosom friend, Miss Snag, I shouldn't mind things so much. The things she wouldn't mind were, let us say, the two million dollars of standing timber which Brown limited, the ominous business name of Mr. Rasselier Brown, were buying that year. If Mr. Rasselier Brown did anything, but he does nothing. Every morning after breakfast, off to his wretched office, and never back till dinner, and in the evening nothing but his club or some business meeting. One would think he would have more ambition. How I wish I had been a man! It was certainly a shame. So it came that, in almost everything she undertook, Mrs. Rasselier Brown had to act without the least help from her husband. Every Wednesday, for instance, when the Dante Club met at her house, they selected four lines each week to meditate on, and then discuss them at lunch. Mrs. Rasselier Brown had to carry the whole burden of it, her very phrase, the whole burden, alone. Anyone who has carried four lines of Dante through a Moselle lunch knows what a weight it is. In all these things her husband was useless, quite useless. It is not right to be ashamed of one's husband and, to do her justice, Mrs. Rasselier Brown always explained to her three hundred intimates that she was not ashamed of him, in fact, that she refused to be, but it was hard to see him brought into comparison at their own table with superior men. Put him, for instance, beside Mr. Sickley Snoop, the sex poet, and where was he? Nowhere. He couldn't even understand what Mr. Snoop was saying, and when Mr. Snoop would stand on the hearth-rug with a cup of tea balanced in his hand, and discuss whether sex was or was not the dominant note in Botticelli, Mr. Rasselyer Brown would be skulking in a corner in his ill-fitting dress-suit. His wife would often catch with an agonized ear such scraps of talk as, When I was first in the coal and wood business, or It's a coal that burns quicker than egg, but it hasn't the heating power of nut, or even in a low undertone the words, If you're feeling dry while he's reading, and this at a time when everybody in the room ought to have been listening to Mr. Snoop. Nor was even this the whole burden of Mrs. Rasselier Brown. There was another part of it which was perhaps more real, though Mrs. Rasselier Brown herself never put it into words. In fact, of this part of her burden she never spoke, even to her bosom friend Miss Snag, nor did she talk about it to the ladies of the Dante Club nor did she make speeches on it to the members of the Women's Afternoon Art Society, nor to the Monday Bridge Club. But the members of the Bridge Club and the Art Society and the Dante Club all talked about it among themselves. Stated very simply, it was this. Mr. Rasselier Brown drank. It was not meant that he was a drunkard or that he drank too much or anything of that sort. He drank, that was all. There was no excess about it. Mr. Rasselier Brown, of course, began the day with an eye-opener, and, after all, what alert man does not wish his eyes well open in the morning? He followed it usually just before breakfast with a bracer, and what wiser precaution can a businessman take than to brace his breakfast? On his way to business he generally had his motor stopped at the Grand Palaver for a moment, 
if it was a raw day, and dropped in and took something to keep out the damp. If it was a cold day, he took something to keep out the cold. And if it was one of those clear sunny days that are so dangerous to the system, he took whatever the bartender, a recognized health expert, suggested to tone the system up, after which he could sit down in his office and transact more business and bigger business in coal, charcoal, wood, pulp, pulp wood, and wood pulp in two hours than any other man in the business could in a week. Naturally so, for he was braced and propped and toned up, and his eyes had been opened and his brain cleared, till outside a very big business, indeed, few men were on a footing with him. In fact, it was business itself which had compelled Mr. Rasselyer Brown to drink. It is all very well for a junior clerk on twenty dollars a week to do his work on sandwiches and malted milk. In big business it is not possible. When a man begins to rise in business, as Mr. Rasselyer Brown had begun twenty-five years ago, he finds that if he wants to succeed, he must cut malted milk clear out. In any position of responsibility, a man has got to drink. No really big deal can be put through without it. If two keen men, sharp as flint, get together to make a deal in which each intends to outdo the other, the only way to succeed is for them to adjourn to some such place as the luncheon-room of the mausoleum club, and both get partially drunk. This is what is called the personal element in business, and beside it, plodding industry is nowhere. Most of all do these principles hold true in such manly out-of-door enterprises as the forest and timber business, where one deals constantly with chief rangers and pathfinders and wood-stalkers, whose very names seem to suggest a horn of whiskey under a hemlock tree. But, let it be repeated and carefully understood, there was no excess about Mr. Rasselyer Brown's drinking. Indeed, whatever he might be compelled to take during the day, and at the mausoleum club in the evening, after his return from his club at night, Mr. Rasselyer Brown made it a fixed rule to take nothing. He might, perhaps, as he passed into the house, step into the dining-room and take a very small drink at the sideboard, but this he counted as part of the return itself, and not after it, and he might, if his brain were over-fatigued, drop down later in the night in his pajamas and dressing-gown, when the house was quiet, and compose his mind with a brandy and water, or something suitable to the stillness of the hour. But this was not really a drink. Mr. Rasselier Brown called it a nip and, of course, any man may need a nip at a time when he would scorn a drink. But, after all, a woman may find herself again in her daughter. There, at least, is consolation. For, as Mrs. Rasselier Brown herself admitted, her daughter, Dulphemia, was herself again. There were, of course, differences, certain differences of face and appearance. Mr. Snoop had expressed this fact exquisitely when he said that it was the difference between a Burne Jones and a Dante Gabriel Rossetti. But even at that the mother and daughter were so alike that people, certain people, were constantly mistaking them on the street, and as everybody that mistook them was apt to be asked to dine on five-dollar champagne, there was plenty of temptation towards error. There is no doubt that Dulphemia Rasselier Brown was a girl of remarkable character and intellect. So is any girl who has beautiful golden hair parted in thick bands on her forehead and deep blue eyes soft as an Italian sky. Even the oldest and most serious men in town admitted that in talking to her they were aware of a grasp, a reach, a depth that surprised them. Thus old Judge Longerstill, 
who talked to her at dinner for an hour on the jurisdiction of the Interstate Commerce Commission, felt sure from the way in which she looked up in his face at intervals and said, How interesting! that she had the mind of a lawyer. And Mr. Brace, the consulting engineer who showed her on the tablecloth at dessert with three forks and a spoon, the method in which the overflow of the spillway of the Gatun Dam is regulated, felt assured from the way she leaned her face on her hand sideways and said, How extraordinary! that she had the brain of an engineer. Similarly, foreign visitors to the social circles of the city were delighted with her. Viscount Fitzthistle, who explained to Delphemia for half an hour the intricacies of the Irish situation, was captivated at the quick grasp she showed by asking him at the end, without a second's hesitation, And which are the nationalists? This kind of thing represents female intellect in its best form. Every man that is really a man is willing to recognize it at once. As to the young men, of course, they flocked to the Rasselier-Brown residence in shoals. There were batches of them every Sunday afternoon at five o'clock, encased in long black frock coats, sitting very rigidly in upright chairs, trying to drink tea with one hand. One might see athletic young college men of the football team trying hard to talk about Italian music, and Italian tenors from the Grand Opera doing their best to talk about college football. There were young men in business talking about art, and young men in art talking about religion, and young clergymen talking about business, because of course the Rasselier-Brown residence was the kind of cultivated home where people of education and taste are at liberty to talk about things they don't know, and to utter freely ideas that they haven't got. It was only now and again when one of the professors from the college across the avenue came booming into the room that the whole conversation was pulverized into dust under the hammer of accurate knowledge. The whole process was what was called, by those who understood such things, a salon. Many people said that Mrs. Rasselier-Brown's afternoons at home were exactly like the delightful salons of the eighteenth century, and whether the gatherings were or were not salons of the eighteenth century, there is no doubt that Mr. Rasselier-Brown, under whose care certain favored guests dropped quietly into the back alcove of the dining-room, did his best to put the gathering on a par with the best saloons of the twentieth. Now it so happened that there had come a singularly slack moment in the social life of the city. The grand opera had sung itself into a huge deficit and closed. There remained nothing of it except the efforts of a committee of ladies to raise enough money to enable Signor Puffi to leave town, and the generous attempt of another committee to gather funds in order to keep Signor Pasti in the city. Beyond this, opera was dead, though the fact that the deficit was nearly twice as large as it had been the year before showed that public interest in music was increasing. It was indeed a singularly trying time of the year. It was too early to go to Europe and too late to go to Bermuda. It was too warm to go south, yet still too cold to go north. In fact, one was almost compelled to stay at home, which was dreadful. As a result, Mrs. Rasselier-Brown and her three hundred friends moved backwards and forwards on Plutoria Avenue, seeking novelty in vain. They washed in waves of silk from tango teas to bridge afternoons, they poured in liquid avalanches of color into crowded receptions, and they sat in glittering rows and listened to lectures on the enfranchisement of the female sex. But for the moment all was weariness. 
Now it happened, whether by accident or design, that just at this moment of general ennui, Mrs. Rasselyer-Brown and her three hundred friends first heard of the presence in the city of Mr. Yahi-Bahi, the celebrated Oriental mystic. He was so celebrated that nobody even thought of asking who he was or where he came from. They merely told one another, and repeated it, that he was the celebrated Yahi-Bahi. They added for those who needed the knowledge that the name was pronounced Yahi-Bahi, and that the doctrine taught by Mr. Yahi-Bahi was Boohooism. This latter, if anyone inquired further, was explained to be a form of Shudooism, only rather more intense. In fact, it was esoteric on receipt of which information everybody remarked at once how infinitely superior the Oriental peoples are to ourselves. Now, as Mrs. Rasselyer-Brown was always a leader in everything that was done in the best circles on Plutoria Avenue, she was naturally among the first to visit Mr. Yahibahi. My dear, she said, in describing afterwards her experience to her bosom friend, Miss Snag, it was most interesting. We drove away down to the queerest part of the city, and went to the strangest little house imaginable, up the narrowest stairs one ever saw, quite eastern, in fact, just like a scene out of the Koran. How fascinating, said Miss Snag. But as a matter of fact, if Mr. Yahibahi's house had been inhabited as it might have been by a streetcar conductor or a railway brakesman, Mrs. Rasselyer-Brown wouldn't have thought it in any way peculiar or fascinating. It was all hung with curtains inside, she went on, with figures of snakes and Indian gods, perfectly weird. And did you see Mr. Yahibahi? asked Miss Snag. Oh, no, my dear, I only saw his assistant, Mr. Ram Spud, such a queer little round man, a Bengalee, I believe. He put his back against a curtain and spread out his arms sideways and wouldn't let me pass. He said that Mr. Yahibahi was in meditation and mustn't be disturbed. How delightful, echoed Miss Snag. But in reality, Mr. Yahibahi was sitting behind the curtain eating a ten-cent can of pork and beans. What I like most about Eastern people, went on Mrs. Rasselyer-Brown, is their wonderful delicacy of feeling. After I had explained about my invitation to Mr. Yahibahi to come and speak to us on Boohooism and was going away, I took a dollar bill out of my purse and laid it on the table. You should have seen the way Mr. Ram Spud took it. He made the deepest salaam and said, Isis, guard you, beautiful lady. Such perfect courtesy, and yet with the air of scorning the money. As I passed out, I couldn't help slipping another dollar into his hand, and he took it as if utterly unaware of it, and muttered, Osiris, keep you, O flower of women. And as I got into the motor, I gave him another dollar, and he said, Osis and Osiris both prolong your existence, O lily of the rice-field. And after he said it, he stood beside the door of the motor and waited without moving till I left. He had such a strange, rapt look, as if he were still expecting something. How exquisite, murmured Miss Snag. It was her business in life to murmur such things as this for Mrs. Rasselyer-Brown. On the whole, reckoning grand opera tickets and dinners, she did very well out of it. "'Is it not?' said Mrs. Rasselyer-Brown. "'So different from our men?' "'I felt so ashamed of my chauffeur, our new man, you know. "'He seemed such a contrast beside Ram Spud. "'The rude way in which he opened the door, "'and the rude way in which he climbed onto his own seat, "'and the rudeness with which he turned on the power, "'I felt positively ashamed. "'And he so managed it, I am sure he did it on purpose, 
that the car splashed a lot of mud over Mr. Spud as it started. Yet oddly enough, the opinion of other people on this new chauffeur, that of Miss Delphemia Rasselier-Brown herself, for example, to whose service he was specially attached, was very different. The great recommendation of him in the eyes of Miss Delphemia and her friends, and the thing that gave him a touch of mystery, was, and what higher qualifications can a chauffeur want, that he didn't look like a chauffeur at all. "'My dear Dolphy,' whispered Miss Philippa Furlong, the rector's sister, who was at that moment Dolphemia's second self, as they sat behind the new chauffeur. "'Don't tell me that he is a chauffeur, because he isn't. He can chauffe, of course, but that's nothing.' For the new chauffeur had a bronzed face, hard as metal, and a stern eye, and when he put on a chauffeur's overcoat, somehow it seemed to turn into a military greatcoat and even when he put on the round-cloth cap of his profession, it was converted straightway into a military shako. And by Miss Delphemia and her friends it was presently reported, or was invented, that he had served in the Philippines, which explained at once the scar upon his forehead, which must have been received at Loilo or Huila or some other suitable place. But what affected Miss Delphemia Brown herself was the splendid rudeness of the chauffeur's manner. It was so different from that of the young men of the salon. Thus, when Mr. Sickley Snoop handed her into the car at any time, he would dance about saying, Allow me, and permit me, and would dive forward to arrange the robes. But the Philippine chauffeur merely swung the door open and said to Delphemia, Get in, and then slammed it. This, of course, sent a thrill up the spine and through the imagination of Miss Delphemia Rasselier-Brown, because it showed that the chauffeur was a gentleman in disguise. She thought it very probable that he was a British nobleman, a younger son, very wild, of a ducal family, and she had her own theories as to why he had entered the service of the Rasselier-Browns. To be quite candid about it, she expected that the Philippine chauffeur meant to elope with her, and every time he drove her from a dinner or a dance, she sat back luxuriously, wishing and expecting the elopement to begin. But for the time being, the interest of Dolphemia, as of everybody else that was anybody at all, centered round Mr. Yahibahi and the new cult of Boohooism. After the visit of Mrs. Rasselier-Brown, a great number of ladies, also in motors, drove down to the house of Mr. Yahibahi, and all of them, whether they saw Mr. Yahibahi himself or his Bengali assistant, Mr. Ram Spud, came back delighted. "'Such exquisite tact,' said one. "'Such delicacy. As I was about to go, I laid a five-dollar gold piece on the edge of the little table. Mr. Spud scarcely seemed to see it. He murmured, "'Osiris, help you,' and pointed to the ceiling. I raised my eyes instinctively, and when I lowered them, the money had disappeared.' I think he must have caused it to vanish. Oh, I'm sure he did, said the listener. Others came back with wonderful stories of Mr. Yahibahi's occult powers, especially his marvelous gift of reading the future. Mrs. Buncomhurst, who had just lost her third husband by divorce, had received from Mr. Yahibahi a glimpse into the future that was almost uncanny in its exactness. She had asked for a divination, and Mr. Yahibahi had effected one by causing her to lay six ten-dollar pieces on the table arranged in the form of a mystic serpent. Over these he had bent and peered deeply, as if seeking to unravel their meaning. And finally he had given her the prophecy, Many things are yet to happen before others begin. 
How does he do it? asked everybody. As a result of all this, it naturally came about that Mr. Yahibahi and Mr. Ramspud were invited to appear at the residence of Mrs. Rasselyer Brown, and it was understood that steps would be taken to form a special society to be known as the Yahibahi Oriental Society. Mr. Sickley Snoop, the sex poet, was the leading spirit in the organization. He had a special fitness for the task. He had actually resided in India. In fact, he had spent six weeks there on a stopover ticket of a round-the-world $635 steamship pilgrimage, and he knew the whole country from Jehumbapur in Bhutal to Jehumbalabad in the Carnatic. So he was looked upon as a great authority on India, China, Mongolia, and all such places by the ladies of Plutoria Avenue. Next in importance was Mrs. Bumkenhurst, who became later, by a perfectly natural process, the president of the society. She was already president of the Daughters of the Revolution, a society confined exclusively to the descendants of Washington's officers and others. She was also president of the Sisters of England, an organization limited exclusively to women born in England and elsewhere. Of the Daughters of Kossuth, made up solely of Hungarians and friends of Hungary and other nations, and of the circle of Franz Joseph, which was composed exclusively of the partisans and others of Austria. In fact, ever since she had lost her third husband, Mrs. Bumkenhurst had thrown herself, that was her phrase, into outside activities. Her one wish was, on her own statement, to lose herself. So, very naturally, Mrs. Rasselier Brown looked at once to Mrs. Buncomhurst to preside over the meetings of the new society. End of chapter 4, part 1. Recording by Joelle Peebles.